A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. If, if you're cooking, just eat the meat. Don't worry about having the veggies. Don't, God, emo- like, you know, put that emotional stress on you that you're not having vegetables, mm. which are total second-rate vitamin and mineral components mm. to what's in the steak. Mm. So I was like, just eat, eat more steak and uh, don't feel guilty, definitely. Um, but if you enjoy your veggies and you're good with them, then go for it. But don't, you know, we've been we've led to believe that they are the be-all and end-all of, of mm. the answers to our health problems, but they are very much far from that. G'day, gang. I'm your host, Bram Connolly, and this then is the Warrior You podcast. That intro soundbite was the amazing professional Ironman triathlete Pete Jacobs. Pete is a previous winner of the Ironman World Championship race in Kona, Hawaii, made all the more remarkable when you hear that he is self-coached and that Pete also lives with a type of chronic fatigue. Pete and I discuss low-carbohydrate diets, then we talk about his shift from low-carb to the carnivore diet. A continual theme that keeps coming up throughout the podcast is the effect on us of the learned patterns that we develop with food, training, and learned patterns of life in general. It wasn't until I was editing this podcast that I realized the importance of what Pete was talking about. Take, for example, eliminating milk from your diet. That morning latte comes with a wonderful feeling that releases all sort of endorphins, a gratification response and a pattern that becomes a ritual and expected behavior. So, just replace it with a black coffee and a dash of milk, I hear you say. That's the answer, surely, right? Well, it's not actually that easy. It's a matter of addressing why you have built that pattern first, and then seeking to understand the pattern in the first place, which allows you to then build better behaviors. And this then goes with all sorts of issues. We also tackle building mental toughness. Pete's taken it all is a little zen, I guess, and I still think it's worth exploring. In fact, it reminded me a little of Bradley Cooper's PhD work on building toughness and his own development and training of laser focus. Pete isn't out there in the wilderness either. As a professional triathlete and a Kona winner, he has access to many and varied brilliant people within both sport and nutrition. Dr. Tim Noakes and Dr. Phil Maffetone, just as an example. Okay, Before we go headlong into it, a few housekeeping items. Just a reminder that the Warrior You podcast is being held in Sydney Friday the 6th of December in the CBD with tickets available at $65. The show will be around two hours long. The guests include Paul Cale, who is arguably one of the most qualified martial artists in Australia or anywhere for that matter. We also have Reese Dewar, OAM, ex-commando captain, and you may know him better as the other... Host of the podcast, the patron saint of common sense. We also have Andy Taylor, the CEO and founder of Aussie Strength, who has some amazing stories about optimization and entrepreneurialism, if that's a word, it is now, and another couple of people also attending as guests who will be helping me discuss leadership, resilience, and human optimization. And if you're part of the audience, you will have the opportunity to have your voice heard on the podcast if you so seek to. Um, because you can ask us questions too. There will be some interesting door prizes 
Uh, I just heard from Aussie Strength today. Andy Taylor said that, that they have an amazing door prize that they're going to put up. So watch this space. Tickets available at www.events.warrioru.com.au. A massive shout out to the main podcast sponsor this week, Ironside Coffee, who do much more than just coffee. Check out their website for some amazing products. They are based in Canberra, but have a global reach. This week, I know for a fact that they sent a coffee order to Venice, LA. Use the discount code WARRIORU, that's WARRIOR with a U, and this will give you 10% off your first transaction on any items in the Ironside Coffee online store. As always, thanks to Aussie Strength. Aussie Strength turns your dreams into a gym. Hell, that should actually be their catchphrase. Let's face it, an awesome home gym is to 2019 what the lower back tattoo was to the late 1990s. Everyone wants one. Or maybe that's having your own podcast. Anyway, Aussie Strength have helped so many people start their own gym businesses and also have stocked more gyms across Australia than I have time to go through on this podcast. Come join their team and help them build a fitter and stronger Australia. That's their mission. Pete Jacobs, welcome to the Warrior You podcast. Hey, Bram. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. I promise not to fanboy too much. <laughs> no, I look forward to hearing your stories, your recounts of triathlon as, as well. <laughs> oh, God, no. Um, hey, look, I was the reason I, I wanted to talk to you was, I think it was a podcast you did with Marcus Smith, actually, talking about carnivore diet yeah and i definitely want to get into that because the warrior you podcast while it's about leadership and resilience it's also about optimization and i just want to have a bit of a chat to you about a journey that i've been on and if you relate to that or if indeed you've been through some of the same things but first of all can you just give us a bit of a a heads up on your triathlon career um yep got into professional triathlon when i was in my early 20s uh, straight away I knew that long course was what I enjoyed and suited me. And the more I delve into what I'm currently delving into with low carb and everything else, um, the more I realize why I'm always found it much easier to do long course than I did short course. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, straight away from my first one, I decided that um, my instinct, my gut, my heart told me that I wanted to become world champion at Ironman. So I did one more year as an age grouper, one more Ironman distance and there then I turned professional and um, took me you know total of 10 years from my first one to, to winning Hawaii and in that time two other top 10s at Kona and a, and a runner-up in 2011 and then won it the following year so that was a big shift mm. um, mentally and I was 30 years old achieved what I wanted to achieve and and um, you know made a good career out of it and but some of my symptoms of fatigue that I'd had since I was a teenager got worse mm. and um, I'd been able to manage them up till that point mm. and, and learn a lot about them. Yeah. Um, learn, learn how to manage them in a way, I guess, physically and mentally, mm. but, uh, but certainly knew nothing about the root cause or anything. And um, yeah, so then I, I kept plugging away and if I could string six weeks of training together, I'd, I'd race well and fire up and um, have a good result. But then if I, felt a bit tired on the race day and was fatigued then I'd blow myself into a massive hole that might last a month or two uh, and I repeated that cycle for about five years trying yeah. to trying to manage it come back have another crack at another Ironman another crack at Kona and um, yeah it just got me nowhere because 
there was no no symptoms that uh, you know nothing showed up no blood tests that I've been having since I was a young kid blood mm. tests stool tests hair tests urine tests everything um, you know all very vague results so I left it, it left me in um, the end of 2017 a couple of failed Ironman attempts to just go okay well I've just got to not race again until I'm 100% sure that I can race and mm. um well and figure out what's going on with my health so i took 2018 completely off and uh yeah and then you know slowly came back towards the end of the year but again it's still been ups and downs but i've found a lot more to the i understand what's going on in my body a hell of a lot more now um mm. than i ever did so i'm back on track to sort of you know i'm racing halves this year 70.3s and back on track to if i can keep improving the way i am the long-term goal is to get back on the podium in kona yeah uh, in the future again which will be awesome and, and i'm 100 percent sure you will before we get to to understanding what it what it was that was going on with you what did it feel like when you were surrounded by other athletes who who sometimes in training you're mixing it with them and beating them and other times you're just flat as anything and, and they're on a glide path what did that feel like what, what did that do to you mentally often it was all right because i learned to control my ego since dealing with the fatigue when i was younger um i learned that it just didn't matter in training if i dropped off and i went easier that's all i could do on the day and i'd be happy with that um so yeah ego was very much under control um, and non-existent almost. But then when I would train with people who would try and tell me what I was doing wrong, mm. and that's, oh, it was incredibly frustrating because, you know, when you've got undiagnosed fatigue and, um, and really anybody who hasn't had, you know, some form of chronic fatigue or chronic aches or pains, um, nobody else can understand how frustrating it is when people think you look well, you haven't been diagnosed, therefore there's nothing wrong with you. Mm you seem well you can perform well sometimes it must all be in your head so you must just need a better coach you must need more motivation you must just need to have more confidence you must just need this that and the other and they just don't get it because these people have never felt low in energy in their life mm. like you know they just have endless energy they can train harder than anyone else can train and it, to them it's just well eat either eat more and that usually comes in the form of eat more carbohydrates, the mm. advice, um, you know, get more motivated and get a coach um, and just do it. Just get out there and do it. And uh, yeah, so very, very frustrating. Um, and at the same time, it does creep in a little bit because you've got zero support from anybody. Mm. And it's it's uh, so it does when you are feeling those bouts of fatigue, it's incredibly hard to have a level head and try and rationalize it out because your head is literally just, you know, foggy mm. and full of brain fog. Your hormones are all out of whack. So you don't have motivation. You don't have any joy. You feel depressed. Everything's hard. Everything's aches and is tiring. Um, so in that moment when you were trying to rationalize how you feel and what other people are telling you, it's a recipe for disaster because yeah. your brain is not working. Was there ever a point where you just thought to yourself, maybe I'm just lazy? And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm not trying to put you on the spot or anything, but I was just wondering if it 
did it come into your head where you were thinking, or perhaps I'm just lazy, or, or perhaps because I, I know that you well, used to take rest, you knew you needed more rest than most people, but that is a second order effect of something else that was going on. Mm. Yeah, it definitely. When I was feeling good and and I'd be a little bit flat on a day, I'd know that I was happy just going out and riding it. Mm. I could still ride for three four hours, um, you know, at 150 watts or something, even lower, and be happy that I've still done some aerobic work you mean my um, ftp that's what you <laughs> <laughs> well let's say it's even lower lower than that okay. um, but my heart rate would only get to maybe 110 heart rate kind of thing like really really basic heart rate yeah um so on those days where i'm a little fatigued but not so bad it does you do think oh maybe i'll just try and get it up try and push my heart rate mm. um and then because you do realize that I guess it's the same as my analogy of depression. It's a lot of it's hormonal um, and biochemical, um, but you also get in patterns of behavior as mm. well, which are not related to those things. It's just related to I've been thinking this way. I've been doing this habit. So mm. therefore, I'm going to keep doing it. So the days that I'm questioning it, it it's not questioning if I'm lazy. I'm questioning if some of the things that I'm thinking and feeling are from a habitual pattern mm. that has been put in place during that time of feeling really, really fatigued and not being able to physically or mentally almost leave the house. Like literally, I don't want to go out. Mm. Um, so I, I do question some days if am I actually feeling flat or am I just the first week back in after a, a month of feeling crappy Mm. That that behavior pattern is what's just I'm feeling. I wake up. So practicing a bit of meditation type exercises and, and I don't really meditate, but I practice being in the moment. And I know when I practice more about being in the moment, I do feel much, much better and much more relaxed and much more energetic mm. um, because I don't wake up and ask myself, how am I feeling today? Mm. Because as soon as you do that, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure mm. when you're somebody who's dealt with habitual um, behavior patterns of that have come from this time of fatigue. So, yeah, um, yeah it, it's certainly something that I work on in terms of questioning, am I performing this out of habit or am I, you know, really feeling tired? So I will head out some days where I'm a little bit tired or I might sit on the wind trainer for an hour and I'm not feeling really flat but I'm feeling a little bit flat, but I'll give it some days. I'll give it 15 minutes and say, no, nah, this is just not even close to feeling like, you know, it feels like there's no oxygen going through your body. So this is, this and, is interesting for me because from a, from a mental toughness perspective, I, I mean, I track all my data. So I know on training peaks and I mean everything. And so I know on training peaks where I, what I should be feeling like. And if I don't, if I don't feel like I should be crushing it, I, I know that I'm flat for a reason but I won't stop because I'll see it as a as a mental toughness almost training to, to just keep to just to get through the, the session. But I but I know that's not necessarily smart now. Now that I'm forty five, I know. But then yep. again, I also feel like if I if I go, no, nah, I don't feel it today, well well I shouldn't be feeling like that because training peaks is telling me that I'm optimal for this workout. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and so, suddenly yeah. I feel guilty. I'm like, no, this is this is me being mentally weak now. And I, and this is such a confusing thing for me. It wasn't until I heard your podcast about gut health and inflammation, which we'll get to um, in a minute, that I started to realize that training peaks is measuring one thing, and training load is what it's measuring, and heart rate variability and 
you know, all that sort of thing. But there's something else going on which it can't possibly measure, which is also affecting my thought process. Yeah, and um, I relate it like so 15 minutes in. It was only a few weeks ago. I just called it when nah, this is not getting any better. Um, so on those days, it's more of a, yes, physically I've got no energy, but also it's more the mental um, stress which makes me call the session and say, nah, it's done. So if I feel that my anxiety levels are getting to a point where I'm all I'm thinking about is this is really hard, this feels terrible, like, and all I'm thinking and building myself up is that I'm almost in a state of like uh, really high tension, high anxiety, um, almost uh, right emotional, like really quite emotional. That's when I'm like, oh, this is definitely not for me because I'm feeling really, really emotional about riding at 110 watts mm. or 110 heart rate. Mm. Um, but then that day, a few weeks ago, I then did a few things throughout the day. Um, and in the afternoon, I, I had a great session in the afternoon. So I was able to turn it around, and which surprised me that I turned around from that to that. But at the same time, uh, I am able to say I'm not going to, push myself when it feels really bad now mm. but another time like i think that afternoon i did it and i probably took an hour maybe to warm into it mm. so it was maybe an hour of just going kind of easy testing a bit like a few short efforts before i actually like really got into it and was like oh okay i'm actually really warming into it heart rate wattage uh, a good mm. and i knocked out a good session but at the same time i didn't go bananas because i knew that i was a little off but i I pushed the threshold of um, of what I was comfortable doing. Mm. And so that's where I make the definitive difference of just mostly my, my mental state of can I push through this and push myself? Yes, it's, it's, it's different. That feeling of mental toughness compared to pushing when I'm actually feeling like emotionally really um, fragile, mm. a very, a very different feelings. And so, like I say, some days it's just – I can get out there and then it's black and white. And when I feel great, I get out on the bike and I'll go ride for four hours and just not a care in the world. And I'll push heart rate and wattage um, and it'll feel really easy. Um, mm. So I know that it does feel really easy on the days that I'm feeling really good. And that's where I just make the call of, you know, how, how good am I feeling? I give it an hour. If I'm still really average at an hour, you know, then we call it, but I give it a, I, I think I've balanced the approach that I'm, I know myself well enough now that uh, – and, and people listening might be thinking, oh, no, you definitely just need a coach to tell you when to go harder. But <laughs> trust me, after 20 years of fatigue issues um, and, and having managed that fatigue, absolutely, I had it while I was – when I won the world title. Mm. I think, you know, I've got a pretty good handle on where my body's at physically yeah. um, on that day. You don't win Kona by not knowing yourself. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I coached myself at that point. I had a mentor that gave me a bit of um, good mental uh, visualization type techniques and, and um, analogies mm. um, and a group that I did two big sessions with, um, group time trial type sessions. Mm. Um, but otherwise, all the other Monday to, Monday to Sunday uh, for months was just my own creation. But it's, it's safe to say that in, in 2000 and, oh, well, 2011 – I think you ran the third fastest marathon back then, 240-something, wasn't it? Yeah, I think maybe the year before. I think when I got second, I ran a 242. The year before, Jesus. I got about, 
I got uh, eighth or ninth, eighth the year yeah. before, a ninth, and I ran two forty one right. low. And you were sick, third. and that and that's run. You were not op- in optimal fitness. You were a sick athlete, as most of them are, because of because of inflammation and what food was doing to you. Yeah, but I mean, I managed to. It was due to injury. Um, mm. Four years in a row. I had an injury that took me completely out of action by choice because I'm not the type of athlete that is going to sit on a wind trainer with a, um, you know, with a broken collarbone. Mm. You know, I, I literally took six weeks off when I did the collarbone, a stress fracture in my foot. Um, and that happened four years in a row leading into my with every year for my four top tens in Kona. So mm. my body was well rested. I literally just trained hard for August, September and then raced. Mm. So my body was healthy enough that that rest of that period of rest got me through that other period because that period of training for Kona was, was always next level. Mm. That was, you know, I, I cut out all sorts of treats like ice cream and I wouldn't go sit at a cafe. I wouldn't go do anything. I was napping. I was, you know, doing recovery rolling. I was eating really well. I, I, you know, lived like a monk as best as I knew mm. at that time for those two months. So there's a lot of differences, um, variables, like as there is with any anything you try and analyze. There's a million variables. Yeah, and so but I just so you worked out, you worked out at some point that the fatigue was a second order effect of diet. Um, well, probably only about a year or two ago, uh, oh. two years ago, probably started looking at that when I started talking to Phil Maffetone, mm. um, and that's when I first went low carb. Mm. Um, and I think I ended up going low carb about two weeks out from racing Ironman Arizona and I'd been sick. I'd had the flu and all of this, but I went low carb two weeks before Ironman Arizona and I raced that race on a little bit of honey water. It was the fewest amount of calories I've ever had in an Ironman. Mm. And yet on the training that I'd done uh, and even considering it, it was one of the best in terms of the easiest, most consistent races that I've ever had. Um, on on basically no calories uh well very few i had some honey water on the bike a little bit of honey water on the run but on the run i didn't touch coke i didn't touch anything i was just like no nope, i'll have my little bit of honey water um and that's all i had for the for the three and i ran about three hour marathon and um yeah so that was the first thing that was 2017 maybe um mm. when i first started that uh low carb approach but i was still uh yeah, it, it worked for a little while. As with every diet change that I've done, things change and improve for a little bit and then I settle back into a more problem and then, yeah, more problems. So mm. it's constant shifting. Even in the last two months, it's shifted again. So. Okay. Yeah, we don't all have a, a Phil Maffetone to, to just go and bounce ideas off of. <laughs> um, I used to, when I was when I was um, training, I used to use the, the fuel, the the math test. So I think it was uh, one forty. No, what was it? Mm. One hundred eighty minus your one hundred and eighty minus your age, which which for me at the time was around one forty, and I would run for one hour. Is that is that about, sound about right? And just and just watch that that heart rate at one hundred and forty beats a minute for an hour. The test is generally you could do it for five k, mm. but nowadays, like you would ideally go to a track and just run flat track, mm-hmm. same conditions, uh, sort of every month. And um, and see how you're improving by training just at that 180 minus your age. Yeah. Yeah. But nowadays with heart rate monitors um, and GPS, you can kind of do that on any run where you are doing a section that you do 
sort of it's dead flat. There's not a lot of wind, um, same heat temperature. Uh, and you can kind of check your math every mm. run that you go on. Mm. That temperature, the temperature variable is massive. I don't think people realise just how much that changes your your ability um, because heat is trying to go to the area that's cool. So it's it's you know it's raising your mm. and, raising and your heart perception rate. Mm. and the perception of how hard it is as well changes how your your technique, your posture, your everything as well. So mm. um, your your mental tension. So yeah, it's it's just so many variables. I, I want to hear about your success or your experience with the carnivore diet in particular yeah um love to um have you found it to be have you fa- have you found well first of all who doesn't want to ribeye a steak in the morning yeah yeah <laughs> awesome <laughs> yeah it's um it's funny when you talk to people and, and 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 some guys actually who aren't maybe great cooks and they feel guilty if they have a steak without veggies and they'll say this to me when i tell them what i eat and they're like oh and i'm like don't feel guilty like just if, if you're cooking, just eat the meat. Don't worry about having the veggies. Don't, God, emo- like, you know, put that emotional stress on you that you're not having vegetables, mm. which are total second-rate vitamin and mineral components mm. to what's in the steak. Mm. So I was like, just eat, eat more steak and uh, don't feel guilty, definitely. Um, but if you enjoy your veggies and you're good with them, then go for it. But don't, you know, we've been we're led to believe that they are the be-all and end-all of, of mm. the answers to our health problems, but they are very much far from that and um yeah so i got into um carnivore diet from from low carb uh and i started hearing a bit about oh well fiber is not really good for gut people with gut problems and i've had ibs since i was in my early 20s and um, and at the same time i heard that oh uh protein isn't that bad for you if you're on a um if you're trying to be in ketosis and before that, every podcast and thing that I'd read was don't eat too much protein or it'll increase your blood sugar and you'll be out of ketosis. So Not, not to mention here, saturated saturated fats, which uh, were made the enemy. Which Yeah, which were, I hadn't mm. – I'd come across a little bit, but that certainly wasn't mm. on my mind at all. I'd, mm. I'd been in the low-carb – I guess having done um, – having been low-carb and, and – trying in ketosis for a year or more i was already aware that that was a whole Mm. fallacy um so when i heard those two things would have been about august last year 2018 Mm. and i started lowering my fiber and i started to feel much better and i started increasing my protein and it was in early january um, i then contacted uh, dr paul mason who's in all the low carb down under YouTube clips, and he spoke at CarnivoryCon earlier this year, and he's just brilliant. Yeah, um, and he he said to me, "Look, you, if you're feeling better and it's going well, then just go for it. Go 100% carnivore, cut everything out because if you've got because uh, at first it was all about oh, just reduce fiber. It might be better for IBS, but then it became." the carnivore scene was growing and I was hearing all about the lectins and oxalates and everything else. Mm. Um, so he gave me the confidence to go um, 100% carnivore. And But I probably still kept in like, I think I kept in a little bit of coffee for a while. Um, and, but I was only having decaf anyway, but I just enjoyed it. Um, so and things like was that it, was took it more another the, couple of months. For, for you, was it more the milk that was the issue with the coffee or do you think? Or was it just um, the coffee in general? No, I think it is the coffee because after not having had it for, for a couple of months, I had a little bit 
the other day and my skin just flared up a tiny bit. Mm. Um, and so for me, I've got this direct pathway. If I get a bit of leaky gut, I get a bit of psoriasis. Yeah, so right. it's it's really quick for me to see that something went wrong with my gut um, mm. and shows up in my skin. Mm. So I've been full carnivore, um, like I say, for, for many months now, um, but I was still getting flare-ups and I couldn't figure it out because I was only eating, you know, mm. meat, fish, eggs, and that was it. And there wasn't a lot of variables. But then I found out about histamine. And mm. suddenly I realized that the times that I've had flare-ups are really related to maybe times that I've overdone the eggs, um, that I've overdone the aged meat and overdone the canned fish and um, and even had a, and I've had a little bit of dairy that would have been you know high in it as well like yogurt and hard mm. cheeses. Mm. So I don't know. I haven't tested exactly if I'm okay with maybe cream or something. But you know it's very hard to find a good list of how much histamine is in things on the internet. Um, you know everyone sort of shares the same list from someone else. But if you're actually looking for research, it's uh, it's not really there. So it's a bit of a um, gamble as to you know. Is this okay if it's this old or if it's been in the fridge an extra few days, how much histamine builds up? And mm. So I just cancel everything out and I went super um, fresh. So I buy the meat that the, the day that the butcher breaks it apart, I buy it from them and I freeze it. Mm. So everything that I've eaten for the last month is – and not everything because I did travel to China and did a race in China mm. um, and I was fine with that. So obviously – as with everything, it's an overload problem with your cells and your um, gut microbiome and everything else. So if I'm healthy, I can handle a bit more food that would cause higher histamine reaction, but it's an overload problem of stress, histamine, food, everything, mm. um, tr training load, sleep. So mm. it's all related to how the cells are communicating to one another. So if I can keep that quite low, I can handle other food that might be slightly higher in histamine, like food that's been slow cooked and um, things like that. But when I'm at home now, I'm eating it straight out of the freezer. I basically pressure cook it um, pretty quickly within an hour uh, or slow cook it in an hour um, and you know, eat, eat that way at the moment. So everything's from frozen and that's working really well for me. Um, you know, That's the healthiest that I've been for the longest time period mm. and so now it's just a um yeah that's the latest thing so yes carnivore was good but for me and my mum's the same so mum and i have very identical symptoms mm. um she's got much worse symptoms and been diagnosed and been on steroids and medications for a long time mm. um being being older which is probably where i'd end up if i'd kept going where i was going but yes she was having the same problems with carnivore and she loves the meat. She'll eat, yeah, a five, six hundred gram ribeye, no problem. Mm. And but she was still having some flare ups and she's found as well by eating less of the aged meats um and less other little things that have histamine, um, like a bit of cheese here and there or something, mm. she's not having the problems either. So yeah, I love I don't have a problem with carnival. Um I find it super easy. It's a really simple decision of what to eat each day. Mm. Um and now that I, I'm down this path of being basically a zero-carb professional athlete mm. and I'm racing 70.3 races at full gas, I'm not consuming any carbohydrates 
during the race either. Finishing them in around four hours. Yeah, it's it's Jeez. opening up this whole new. Yes, I'm carnivore, but now I need to figure out how how am I doing this? How is the body working? So it's a really cool project to be able to experiment on, and I'm lucky to have guys like Dr. Paul Mason. Mm. Um, in my corner, being able to feed me some of the information around how the body works. And I've got a few, there's a few other guys on Twitter as well that also have chipped in um, a bit of information and are also interested in what I'm, what I'm doing and um, helping me understand how I'm doing it. And so I'm, I'm really learning about all these other pathways of how the body creates energy. So you're using fat for fuel while, while racing. Yeah. So it's assumed that my capacity for burning fat is incredibly high for starters because I'm now so, so well fat adapted um, that I will at some point in the next few months get into a lab and do some respiratory quotient testing. Mm. Um, but then it's also a matter of, well, where else am I getting the glycogen from right. um, and the glucose that I'm also using as well as the fat? Because, you know, I'm racing at 160 plus heart rate for, for near on four hours mm. and yet not running out of energy whatsoever. So, mm. and it's not just that I'm not running out of energy. It's then that I finish the race and then I go the rest of the day without replenishing my glycogen through eating carbs. Mm. And I'm still fine many hours later and I'm still fine the next day. So all of these theories that people think, uh, you know, Oh, you're going to run out of glycogen in two hours and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's many, many other pathways. And um, yeah, I'm only scratching the surface of my understanding of it. There are people out there who understand all those pathways much better than I do. But you you do get glycerol from the triglycerides as you burn the fatty acids from within your muscles. So then the glycerol can be turned through gluconeogenesis into glucose and mm. glycogen. You also are um, using up the lactate as well. The lactate is is replenishing your energy as well, being used for energy through pathways. Um, the Krebs cycle and pyruvate and amino acids as well, uh, also being used through gluconeogenesis. So, yeah, you've got many other pathways that I don't fully understand all of them, but I'm slowly learning that um, it's it's incredible and I'm, I'm just having giving my body complete faith that, and this is my gut instinct. I think I wrote to Paul Mason about oh, five months ago when I was on the wind trainer pricking my blood and, you know, I was testing ketones and blood sugar while doing effort. And I wrote to him and said, I've got a, I've just got an instinctual feeling that maybe I'm going to be better without carbohydrates at all wow. in a race. But it took me two more races of attempting it with, some carbohydrates on board um, before I went, no, I have the confidence. It's just not working that way. Um, I don't think I need them for me to do it. So there's that, there's obviously a lot of peer pressure still and a lot of behavior patterns that come in from what's everyone else doing. And we've been told this for so long. Oh God, And (laughs) and I didn't understand. I still, like I say, I'm still learning, but I didn't understand any of these other pathways back then. Mm. And so to me, it was very much like, oh, no, if I'm using up the glycogen in my muscles and my liver, I'm going to run out and therefore I need to be adding in some. But now that, you know, I I, I had said back then that nobody even knows how much glycogen you're using out of your muscles and liver because no one's getting across the Ironman finish line, you know, getting muscle biopsies and (laughs) liver biopsies and testing. Oh, let's see how much is actually left. Mm. Where have you used it from? 
it's just it's just such an untested area of research in in endurance athletes and particularly athletes that haven't eaten carbohydrates for six months what we've been told for, for years and years might just be wrong i mean i've heard cosmologists say that they know more about the universe than what dietitians know about diet because it's so individualistic um yeah <laughs> i think i heard somewhere that i think it was like 1955 where president eisenhower had a heart attack and yeah and then the usa was in a massive panic because there was this sudden understanding in this optic put on death due to heart disease I think he was he was out of office for like ten days, and then everyone was really confused about what was causing this epidemic through the United States. And then a, a pathologist from uh, University of Minnesota, Ansel Keys, so he mm. yeah, so he he came up with this theory that it was saturated fats, and that they were the reason that everyone was um, getting sick. And he he did this famous study. Um, the seven country study or something like that it was called yeah and just he just picked what numbers he wanted out of this yeah. stats and yeah and he was made a, up his own conclusion yeah and he was a bully as well that's well known that he was a well he was a prick and well i shouldn't say that i don't know that for sure um <laughs> but there was very little peer reviews done and he pushed it. it was really bullish the way he pushed it on the american heart association and if you look back in history you know that's what in the, in the that's 50, 1955 that's the start of where where the food pyramid became hey eat grains and eat carbohydrates mm. and then eat eat some fruit and veg and then eat some dairy and just eat a little bit of meat and it's if you look at it and I, I put a post on Instagram last night it's like the the food pyramid's the wrong way around it's, it should be up the other way and I, I know from yeah. I know I tried a ketogenic diet um, and people who listen to this podcast know that I, I did a I gave it a good college try. And the thing I found with it was that I felt good, but I felt it was making me feel flat. And I thought that I was feeling flat because I wasn't getting the carbs. And then after I heard your podcast with um, with Marcus Smith, I'm fairly sure it was with Marcus Smith. I might have been the HVMN one. I, I started to realize that I was feeling sick the day after I was gorging on broccoli and and salad as well as the meat and so rather than try and do it all again i thought i'm just going to go a week of just eating basically rump steak and ribeyes um you know Mm. and and see how i feel because it will eliminate everything else and and maybe it's not good for me i don't know quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com but I'll do it. And I've got to say, I felt good. Um, I did feel yeah. good. And I didn't feel flat at all. I thought I would. And now I'm just starting to introduce avocado and some um, some olive oil and coconut oil and things like that and just slowly expand and I'll, I'll start eating chicken. And But I do think that there's something in – and I can't believe I'm going to say this because I've got friends who are dietitians who, would, who, who will absolutely hate me saying this, but I do think there's something <laughs> there's something in – in what we eat, what we consume as salads, thinking this is the healthy alternative that 
that actually makes me yeah well not well and actually makes yeah, well, me that's, tired. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I experience, and mm. it's the and for me it, it's well I don't know exactly, but the lectins and oxalates are the main two inflammatory proteins that plants are using to protect themselves. And so when we ingest them, uh, it's the same as a gluten. So a lot of people are reactive to gluten and you could argue that everybody is reactive to gluten Mm. at some level Mm. because no human can digest it. Therefore, this protein is going all the way through your intestines and Mm. out the other end completely undigested. So Mm. at some point it can be causing some uh, inflammation. But it all depends on how much and then how quickly you repair from that inflammation that whether you notice it or not. Mm. Um, but for me, definitely cutting out the lectins and oxalates. And like I say, there's, an, there's another dozen reasons why plants have these protective mechanisms that can be affecting us as well. The hormonal effects, um, phytic acid. Um, like I say, I don't know them all, but there's a lot of them. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, these plants are just trying to protect themselves. And it's no coincidence that there's only a small amount of plants out of the millions that are on the planet that we can actually eat because mm. we're not we're not made to eat all of these plants. We're able to eat some plants at some level, but not everybody's got the the ability to digest them well enough without causing inflammation at a level that's going to cause some problems. So for me, by cutting that stuff out, which, like I said earlier, the the they're not as anywhere near as nutrient dense as the proteins. Mm. So if you're eating eggs, fish, and meat, you're getting far, far, far more proteins uh, or um, nutrients than you are getting if you're eating salad. Mm. Um, And that goes for anything, whether you think it's kale's the most amazing plant on the planet or whether you think it's spinach or broccoli. Mm. The funny thing is that most of them, there's half a dozen that all come from the same mustard plant Mm. and we're just bred into different ways. So you're actually eating the same plant. If you consider the animals that do eat plants, they eat a variety of plants, you know, throughout the seasons it changes through a different field, a different spot on the field it changes. And and yet we're often eating this same plants day in, day out, 365 days a year. And half a dozen of those are actually the exact same plant, just bred for a different part of the plant like the kale was bred out for the leaves the broccoli was for the florets and so on and so on Mm. so yeah you're eating the same poisonous you know anti anti nutrients um, from the same plants over and over again and that can become a problem and even um I mean, everybody admits it, like everybody that's in nutrition admits that yes there are oxalates and lectins in plants and even the indigenous Australians knew that they they will cook some of the greens, the plants that they can eat. They know, oh no, we need to cook this first to reduce the oxalates, or otherwise it will make you sick. Mm. So if you just consider that for a second, there's there are every plant has lectins and oxalates, and some have them much higher than others. But we're still eating these foods that we know have this thing in it that isn't good for us. But mm. then we go, oh well, as long as we don't eat too much of it, or as long as we reduce the amount of toxins by cooking it, Mm. then let's continue to eat lots of it and let's tell everybody we should be eating it six times a day, you know, fruit and veg and and go down that pathway. Mm. So it's quite a juxtaposition of you're eating something that you know has some 
anti-nutrients that is going to cause inflammation. Mm. And instead of eating something uh, like meat, fish, and eggs that you know is super high in essentials, things that we can only get from those uh, products, so the fatty uh, from fatty fish, you know, DHA mm. and uh, omega threes, really good levels. Um, from eggs, there's a thousand things in eggs. Um, obviously, there's B12s, there's heme iron, um, there's so many different products that you can only get from the essential aminos and the essential fatty acids from animal products. Yeah. So it's just crazy that we've been told to limit the stuff that we really, really need and there's no downside to unless you want to – obviously, people still do believe that um, Ansel Keith hypothesis, some people. Um, but if you if you look at the current research that can disprove that, then it's quite obvious that you know we're, we're giving up the stuff that's super good for us and choosing stuff that is totally unnecessary. Yeah. And, uh, Dr. Paul Mason does a great presentation on fiber as well. That, mm. uh, every study ever shown about people with problems with their bowels, like pain, you know, constipation, discomfort, bleeding, gets worse when you eat more fiber. Mm. Every study will show this. Mm. And, he, and he just talks and he does a great presentation on it and um, uses all the research to, to show that actually if you reduce fiber, you will actually lose all that discomfort uh, mm. and pain. And, um, and that's where I'm at now that when you said, yes, you, you tried eating more protein and, and going a bit carnivore and going carnivore, then I thought, well, the main thing that I make sure that I'm doing is that I'm eating a lot of protein because it is, it's, it's 90% of my energy. Mm. So, oh yeah, uh, I'm not, I'm not mucking around. I'm not mucking around, yeah. mate. Like I'm, I'm eating <laughs> like, oh, like I was eating, you know, two rump steaks, you know, let's, you know, in, in a meal, that's a that was almost a kilogram of meat, and, and oh, I good. and oh, I thought I that was, was say- no, and I thought that was going to make me. I thought that was going to give me all sorts of bowel issues. Oh my god, I can't even believe that we're having this conversation because one of the well, it's mostly water. Yeah, and the thing that was interesting to me, and I don't want to get in. I don't want to be a militant, you know, anti-vegan. I don't want to get involved in this fight. I just know what I'm eating that's making me feel. A bit better, and I'm still like you. I mean, you you've actually found the path. Like you're, you're fine in this journey. I'm still mucking around with the whole association between gut health, what I'm diet, mental health, you know, physical health. And and I mean, I'm nowhere, not even in the same class as someone who's not in the same class as you, let alone you know as an athlete. But but I but I do understand that you know there's been what a hundred generations that haven't adapted to this type of diet in the industrial era. And there's a, a hundred thousand generations that were foragers and eating and, and eating very, very limited plants and, and were eating a lot of fat and a lot of a lot of meat products. And that's the reason that our brain is the way it is today. Yeah, um, exactly. And there's a whole if we rather than just even debate about it, if we could all sit around and talk and say, look, this is you know, these these people, these idealists who think we should be eating purely you know vegetable fruit products probably don't even understand what it is or where these things actually come from and the second you know the second third order effects of of farming and, and subsist, you know subsistence like that i like it if you just look back uh you know you go back 50 60 years there was no um industrialized seed oils you go back 300 years there was very very tiny amounts of sugar mm. uh and you go back well, let's say 5,000 to 10,000 years, but probably 5,000 for 
a lot of the world, there's no agriculture. Mm. And yet we're the same, very similar genetics from mm. 2 million years ago. Mm. So for a blink of the eye, we've had these changes in our diet and our health is chronic health disease in the world is just, you know, growing at an exponential rate. Mm. Uh, it's pretty easy just to go, hey, let's just go back. Just if we start just by going back 60 years mm. to what every, when every, every time I say to someone, oh, I eat, I eat liver and I eat brain and I eat heart and they all look at me like, oh my God, oh, my grandma used to make me that. And oh, it was quite gross. But some people go, oh yeah, I really used to like that when my grandma cooked that, but they don't eat it now. Mm. Um, but either way, it comes back to, that's what their grandma used to make. And mm. so we're talking like 1940s, 50s, before Mate. everything became processed yeah. and full of industrialized oils and marketing and profits became like a whole different beast mm. to what it is now. Um, you know, so it's uh, if we just went back that far, I think that it'd be um, quite easy to what? look at what we were eating then. And, and that was we were eating a lot more meat than we were now and we weren't eating processed foods like we are now so my, my grandparents lived into their 80s and they you know i recall them eating bacon dripping um my father lived into his early 70s died of um bowel cancer you know, which mm. wasn't hereditary and it's based on i mean i, I think sugar is is probably the demon here and everything other than yeah carb- and- yeah yeah, and I'm looking into that at the moment a lot lately is the because pro- protein's become such an important part of my life, but it's made me realize how important it is for everybody. Mm. And particularly as people get older, mm. they will eat less and less. They might become more health conscious and therefore they follow the guidelines. So they stop eating meat and they start eating, you know, the healthy breakfast cereal and but they just generally eat less because they can't eat as much. So they generally eat almost no protein older generations. Mm. And they very quickly get very low muscle mass. They very quickly aren't eating any protein. They very quickly are living on sugars for three or four or five meals a day constantly to keep them, you know, pepped up from keep getting low blood sugar because they just aren't used to that. Um, yeah, so protein is an incredibly important part that, as people get older, it's um, it becomes a real worry of how to make sure that they're getting enough. And I think in the future, and this is from one podcast, the research that they did, they had to use an amino acid supplement because mm. otherwise there was no way of getting older people to eat the, the amount, required the amount of protein to do the research study. So yeah. they, And I think in the future maybe that's where a lot of healthcare will – something in healthcare might go down that pathway of they're actually going to start giving older people in, in homes and things um, an amino acid supplement to make sure that they can still, you know, use those parts of their body and their muscle mass will maintain a little bit better and, uh, yeah, they'll just be healthier. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've got to say the photos of you this, this year, um, you look stronger than what you ever have if it's just because you're older. <laughs> I haven't strung together like more than a, about a month of good training. Like mm. I say, I was still up until six, seven weeks ago. That was when I last sort of mm. found out about the histamine. Um, and so I'm, I'm still in the phase where I'm looking to string together like a few months of good training. And, mm. then, and then we'll see how the body's really feeling and what I can do. But just from feeling, just from an okay bit of training, um, 
I'm able to then go into races and perform at the level that I would have expected and I'm quite happy to based on the training I've done. So I just need to now back that up with the volume in training. And yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure I can get um, back up to the top of 70.3s later sure. this year and then move on to Ironman next year. Mm. Unless, I, unless of course, I come along. Um, so um, <laughs> yeah, like the photo of you at Huskisson, I'm just having a look at it now. Like that was a four-hour six half and you'd started to eliminate things from your diet then hmm. interesting yeah and uh a lot of things that i've learned along the way it, it, it's not just about diet um mm. i've worked with a lot of different practitioners and so i know that vagal tone is super important for me um mm. you know uh, as i mentioned before these these habitual patterns and and one side of my brain being more overactive and hormones being really out of whack for many many years um possibly 20 years so Working on calming my brain down, working on vagal tone for my parasympathetic nervous system is super important to giving my cells better information mm. so that uh, the cells then don't become overloaded with stress and therefore react more to mm. something I've eaten. Um, so it's this constant dance of you know, increasing this, decreasing that, working on this, work on that you know so um but yeah i'm i'm learning and i just have to make sure that i'm doing all at once and mm. um yeah but i do a, a supplements are, are super important as well i'm magnesium um i find is super important mm. as well for, for every athlete mm. um, but generally because i'm eating so much meat um i'm getting so many amino acids that other supplementation isn't really important i'm getting so many vitamins because i eat liver a couple of times a week Mm. Um, God. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Couldn't do it. I'm, <laughs> and I, I eat my liver and my brains together sometimes. I know it's that <laughs> next step for for an, for all round. I mean, this is the other thing. People right now are probably thinking, "Oh, what about scurvy? <laughs> you know, like what about?" But and and we were taught that as kids, right? You got to eat fruit and vegetable, and you got to get vitamin uh, B and C. Otherwise, you get scurvy. But but mm. that was because. The, the, like the the early explorers were eating types of beef that were ref, refined and in cans, um, and and they weren't yeah, uh, they weren't eating a well rounded carnivorous diet if that's a thing. Yeah, on on Captain Cook's ship actually they prevented scurvy scurvy by eating the rats that had come on board to eat the decaying food that was on board. So the, the rats had enough vitamin C that mm. that prevented scurvy itself. Oh, um, so. Yeah, you don't need a lot of vitamin C when you're not eating a highly processed, highly carbohydrate-driven mm. diet because do you, the carbohydrates do you, do you attach get your, to the vitamin C. Yeah. Sorry, mate. Do you get your bloods yeah. done? Do you do you track? I haven't uh, in the last. I haven't this year. I don't think at all. Mm. Um, it is in my mind, but at the same time, it's one of those things that I want to track once I've had like you know months of mm. consistency mm. and training is going really well. Um, then I'll look at it because that's – I'm sure it's going to be more well, – I've spent my entire life getting tests, so I know that how I'm feeling now, is it's unlikely to show up any This is the This is the weakness, change. though, in the carnivore argument, just playing devil's advocate, because Sean, yeah. Sean Baker, who is probably the most prolific exponent of the carnivorous diet on Instagram anyway mm. – I mean, he's a, he's a doctor, so he's no he's – no, you know, he's not stupid – um, and I think he's a world record. Well, he's le- he's a legitimate rower anyway. 
Um, yeah. He's never had his bloods done. So, you know, they're not, they're not able to track his HDL or, or, or those different um, sort of cholesterol levels. Yeah. Well, I think I can't, I can't speak for sure, but from my aspect, like I said, I've had bloods and everything tested and spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Mm. Um, and nothing's ever showing up like, okay, this is what you need to change. Mm. So for me to just be feeling much, much better than I have in a long time, um, I think, I mean, that's, that's the only defining marker that really matters because we have clients that we work with. And when you're just talking about reintroducing food and you say, okay, we'll reintroduce dairy. How did you feel? Oh yeah, I felt a bit flat or I got a bit of a, I got a runny nose and blocked up and congested or this often, uh, or they ate gluten. How did you feel? Oh yeah. I felt really, really lousy for about three days. Um, and it's like, well, we don't need a blood test to tell mm, us that mm. you should not eat those type of foods. Mm. So that's where blood tests fail. And the other area that blood tests fail is that they're based on the general population. So they just take the averages and go, well, this is the average and, most of the average population is pretty sick anyway. So mm. if they saw my – if I walked in there and they tested my blood sugar, uh, you know, and it's 4.6, they'd probably throw their hands up and go, <laughs> oh, my God, you you need something. And yet I'll be like, oh, no, I'm about to go for a three-hour ride. And they'll right. be like, no, you can't do that. Your blood sugar's low. Um, so that's the other problem with um, with uh, the recommended values of, of blood as well, that it's – it's based on the general population and um, yeah. the general population is pretty unhealthy and they're eating a high carbohydrate diet, which does change your requirements for a lot of things that happen in the body, like, you know, a lot of those processes. So so um, if, if your blood sugar is at 4.6 millimole, I guess that is, um, yeah. what would your ketones be at, do you know? Would you test that? They're, they're generally just at 0.2 pretty much all the time unless I've done some uh, extended training. Point two. So, yeah. Wow. So that means so, that would mean to me, and I'm, and I'm by no means qualified in anything I'm about to say. Um, that would mean to me that that you're constantly in ketosis, but it's only really mild. Well, it's not even really mild, is it? It's low. Well, that's the yeah. That's an interesting argument, and the arc. Um, that's the old school thought, and a lot of people do still look at it like that, but. When you're talking to people like myself and, and a few other doctors that I talk to, mm. um, it's got absolutely nothing to do with your state of ketosis at all. Mm. It comes down to what are you doing with the um, acetyl-CoA once it, it, when it's there. So mm. acetyl-CoA, the beginning of energy at, at one point in the chain, but quite early on in the chain, acetyl-CoA. And the, the theory is that if you're not using it for uh, using carbohydrates and using glycogen as an energy source, then that acetyl-CoA will go all into producing ketones. Right. But I, I do believe in myself and other athletes that are trained and have these other pathways that are more open and more usable that we're still using the acetyl-CoA in other actions like the Krebs cycle, mm. for example. So which is what normally they might say, oh, that shuts down and all the acetyl-CoA would normally go to ketones. So mm. that's just the anecdotal evidence at the moment um, from talking to a couple of doctors is uh, that we're still using – the energy is just being used in other pathways. It's so complex. We're just not using – we're not producing as high ketones because we're in a way more efficient. We're not – 
we're not burning up energy at such a high rate because if your ketones are high, mm. you're just breathing it out, a lot of it, because it just turns into, you know, your breath and a little bit of energy. Mm. So, yes, you might be losing more weight. Maybe you're burning more fat. But at the same time, maybe you're just not using those other pathways for the energy prior to it being turned into ketones. Mm. So it, it means nothing about how uh, how deep in ketosis you are. Um, it's it's yeah, it's really different. So I haven't done, I haven't tested myself. I could have longer side fasted is is twenty four hours, mm. um, and I did that once when I was traveling to China the other week, mm. um, and I didn't test afterwards, but. Uh, I'll be curious next time I travel to China, I'll do the same thing and I'll test after that 24 hours and see if, see if that changes. But mm. I, I have, I don't have a lot of, you know, my instinct tells me it's just not really going to change that much. And, um, you know, I don't know, cause extended fast people generally get higher and higher and higher ketones, mm. but you know, I don't know that everyone's different. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. I mean, I'm more confused by this conversation and yet, it's what it's done is it's crystallized my mind that it is just really complex and very individualized. Yeah. And don't listen to somebody like literally anytime somebody says, this is how much of this you should have. And this is what that should be. You just have to question it and go, hang mm. on, but what if my numbers are different or what if I ate a different amount of that? Um, you know, because everyone else tells me I should be eating a high fat diet, not everyone, but the the carnivore kind of community lean towards a high fat percentage whereas if i had a high fat percentage i'm just on the toilet with the runs because mm. it'll go straight through me and then i feel lousy because i haven't absorbed any of the energy or the protein or the minerals and vitamins and um so yeah i i'm much better off with just focusing on just eat protein and eat the fat that comes with the protein but i don't add any extra fat to my diet um because mm. i'm i'm getting the optimal amount for me to go in one end and out the other and absorb as much as I can. Um, yeah, it just feels best doing it that way. So yeah, don't listen to what everyone else is doing. Just, just to move away from nutrition for a minute, mental toughness. Do you, do you believe that people are born with it or can you train it? Uh, you definitely can train it. Um, it does depend in, in, in what aspect it would be. Mm. Um, but I can talk just from a race perspective mm. The year that I won Plona, I was definitely doing visualization in training. And, you know, I was using the word love. Um, but since then, I've learned that it, that was just the trigger word for me to become back in the moment and feel grateful. So being grateful, um, being in the moment is just another way of building mental toughness. Like, because basically, you suddenly, nothing exists except what exists in this very second in time. Mm. And that is one of the best forms of mental toughness that there is. And that's the one that I've used and honed mm. so that I visualized in training that which visualizing in training trained that in me so that in the race, I was super calm. I made all the right decisions all day because I was never panicked. I was never worried. And also I had such a great race because being in the moment also kept my you know, my heart rate a bit lower. It kept my perception of the stress and uh, danger low, I guess. Mm. Um, I always use the word, you know, I, I might say to myself, I'm safe. So that's just a phrase that reminds me that I have nothing to worry about because obviously that just comes back to feeling anxiety or feeling fear. And 
I practice that in the gym as much as anywhere else where if I'm lifting something heavy, I remain in that really calm moment, present state of mind. And then I lift that heavy weight that is my max. But I use those phrases like no, no expectations or I'm safe. And that just makes me totally forget about how heavy the weight is, that there is even a weight there. And I just move with no effort. And that's another way that I train my mind and body under stress, like under load Mm. to deal with, to be calm when I'm pushing quite hard or even pushing at my max. Mm. So yeah, in the race that, that also meant that in the race, I was able to stop about 7k into the race and do a few stretches because my back was tightening up um, as I knew it would getting the wind. So having presence in the moment, yeah, for me is the state of mind that and the mental toughness, I guess, that really works for me. And I was in a fair, I was in a bit of pain the last couple of races, just in the last month. And I really worked on that same thing. So if that's that type of mental toughness, like, oh, this is really hurting. I don't know if I'm going to get to the finish. This, I just wish I could stop. Um, to turn that around, it was just a matter of changing the story that I was telling myself. So awesome. Yep. I just told myself, this isn't as hard as it was in Kona in 2011. You know, when I got second, I was in the most pain I've ever been in. So mm. I related to that experience. I related to, okay, this is just a long run and you've just got 3K left of your Sunday long run. There's no pressure. There's no one around you. There's no one chasing you. And if this was your Sunday long run, you would just jog it into the finish and you'll be relaxed, you're calm, you're safe. Um, so I use those sorts of stories and phrases to get me back in the moment to relieve stress and tension and anxieties and my body relaxes and can perform better um, through those techniques. That's brilliant. I mean, you, you've basically nailed all the components of mental toughness and developing it there anyway, controlling the narrative, building your own visualization, having a catchphrase that will remind you of what you've done in training. It's just interesting that yours is a little bit more zen, zen zen-like, I guess, than what some other people's I've heard, which which is, well, it's actually worth exploring a little bit more, I think. I like it. Yeah, I think a lot of people do go that more, get angry, and Mm. then that helps them overcome with maybe more adrenaline, um, and things like that, which is great, but you can't run on adrenaline for eight hours in an Ironman. Mm. Um, mm. You're going to run out, and that comes back to Tim Noakes' central governor theory, which you know part of that is how long can you tolerate pain for, and what's your motivation? Are key defining factors for how well you can physically perform and for how long. So, how long is it before your pain tolerance is going to reach its limit? Mm. Uh, and how long before your motivation is exhausted mm. and by by basically not tapping into either of those things until you really really need to towards the end um that way the rest of the race is run basically in a in a state of boredom almost mm. you just you try and pretend that you're not really there almost and and um so that's in training. I mean, if in training in the gym, I try to be bored, that's how it should feel, that there's just nothing in your mind, there's nothing going on. You literally are just like a zombie walking around with nothing in your head. Whereas if I went around to every machine in the gym with a, a adrenaline and anger and mm. um, and try to, okay, uh, grip my teeth and push it out that way, then I'm training my body that every time I go hard, I have to be in that state of mind Mm. and you can't like i say you just can't do that every time you need to push hard 
over the course of eight hours, there might be, you know, a hundred times that you need to make a decision to push a bit harder. Mm. And and if your fallback, uh, your autonomic response is anger in those situations, you're going to exhaust your your brain of those, you know, pain tolerance and motivations pretty quickly. So it's yeah, the Zen approach is going to. It's a bit like the uh, the Jedi, you know. Um, mm. the, Jedi versus um, the the dark side, mm. and the dark side claims that they'll be able to get greater power and they'll rule the world because the dark force is is stronger. But you know, in the end, the Jedi always win. Mm. So speaking of <laughs> speaking of Jedi's winning, Pete, twenty twenty is it is it possible that you will be able to complete an Ironman basically carb free? Up until the last two races, I, brought, I kept saying, oh, I'm not sure about this. But after the last two races, and they were only halves, but I felt fine throughout them. Only. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know at all. And, mm. and it's not a matter of I'm doing it because I, 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 I'm trying to prove anything. It was a matter of I tested it the other way. Um, I just ended up going the other route without and – I just needed a lot more caffeine um, mm. and, you know, I, I didn't, I don't need to drink much anymore because uh, there's a lot of, this is another thing that has not been tested and things, but basically I don't need to drink anywhere near as much fluid as I used to. Um, mm. So in a half at sunny coast, which is a relatively warm day. Um, yeah. I would have probably only drunk about a total of 600, 700 mil of mm. water and salt. Um, and I had nothing on the run, just rinse and spit Coke and maybe ingested like, you know, 10, 20, 30 mil of Coke. Mm. Um, so the other factor is that a high salt diet that I eat and the low carb diet, I potentially am storing a lot of salt mm. as well. So therefore my body is not dehydrating from electrolytes as quickly. Mm. Um, at the moment I'm looking into that hydration, uh, what would be best in an Ironman. Mm. Um, yeah, so just figuring that out at the moment. If it's a if it's a carb, very 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 low carb drink that is very very high in um, other electrolytes and and other minerals, like and a, a mixture can... of coconut water and water or something like that. Yeah, but uh, but specifically made so we can mm. get the levels of minerals up as high as possible. Mm. Um, so we can absorb as much of the fluid and the salts. Mm. as we can mm. um, because obviously I don't want to have a 6 to 8% carb drink, which would be ideal for absorption through the gut, but mm. uh, trying to get it up as high as possible without just increasing carbohydrates. Right. Um, so that's just a, a theory at the moment um, mm. of having a 1% to 2% carb with another small, what, as higher amount of, of minerals as we can to get that as dense as we can um, for absorption through the gut. And amino, um, amino acid in that as well? As a, yeah, that's, as that's someone... totally another thing as well, yeah, yeah, because I am using gluconeogenesis quite a lot. Mm. Maybe, Maybe that'll um, work. Amino yeah. acids and, and particular types of amino acids. So this would require a bit of digging into some mm. – Trying to find studies that showed which which aminos are going to be best and for um, you. That. You and would but, never need a creatine supplement, I would assume. <laughs> no, but a carnitine though is something that oh. might be added to the mm. mixture for mm. races, mm. Um, because carnitine is really crucial in the uh, fat metabolism process. Mm. Um, so I get enough just through um, all the meat that I eat. Mm. 
but day to day. But yeah, it would be interesting to see. We might do that in a study in the lab to see if supplementing with carnitine changes much. Once I get really fit and really consistent in my training and output, and I know that every day I can do what I'm expected to do, mm. um, then uh, then we'll start mucking about with that a little bit. So that will be, you know, the rest of this year is pretty busy with races, um, another three or four halves mm. uh, and the noose to try. And, um, but, yeah, next year, if, if all goes well, then December, January, February are training for an Ironman potentially mm. and then look at doing an Ironman in the first half of next year. Awesome. If, if I'm ready to like go really well at it. So I would only race it if I thought I can run like a 240 and I would only go back to Kona if I felt I could run a sub 240. Yeah. Um, Gosh. <laughs> so I would imagine it. That's, that's, awesome. that's my expectations of myself mm. and, and also the commitment that it takes to go back to Kona mm. um, as well. And, and because I've had so many failed Ironmans, it's certainly nothing that I want to go through again. Um, mm. You know, I've got the halves down pat that I can just knock them out pretty pretty easy now. I just need to get faster at them. Uh, but the energy is all I'm talking about, uh, which is what makes me so happy. The fact that my energy levels are now super, super consistent, um, except if I've, you know, mucked something up in sleep, training, diet. I know where I've mucked it up. But mm. in terms of the mystery of what I'm mucking up, which is what it used to be, um, mm. yeah, it's no, it's no longer such a mystery. So I'm just happy to be able to perform, you know, with energy and 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 have that behind me now. Because even earlier this year, the whole doubt of, oh, when do I need carbohydrates? Do I need them in training? Do I need this? What am I lacking? Um, so now that I'm confident to know, okay, now I know how my body's working, I can give it what it needs when it needs it a bit more directly and not have that cloud of doubt over me. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't wait to see how you go in the 2020 and really, <laughs> really looking forward to see you go back to, to the, the long distance and see how that works out for you, the longest distance. Yeah, me too. It will, it will be exciting. So I hope I um, keep carrying on this way. You'll be riding Boardman again next year? <laughs> I'm still on BMCs the last few years. Mm. Uh, Boardman's was a long time ago. Was it? Um, yeah. Did you love him? BMC's the last few years. Good looking boy. Nice. Yeah. Cool, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, th- thanks very much, Pete, for being on the Warrior You podcast. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you getting back to me so quickly and such an interesting chat and right at, the, at, at a great time for me while I'm still mucking around with my own diet and trying to trying to find where I'm at. Yeah, I hope it can help. I hope it helps a little bit. No, it's uh, just confused yeah. the crap out of me. <laughs> uh, no, it is. Good. The more... The more you listen, the more confusing it gets. And I'm now listening to podcasts, mm. you know, that I've already listened to. But when I re-listen to them now, I'm picking up different things mm. um, because now I understand more about, oh, well, they mentioned that word that a few months ago I had no idea what that word was. Mm. Now I know where that word fits in in relation to other things. And, yeah, so it's um, yeah, it, it's just nice to be learning as well. Yeah. And what, what sort of – how many hours are you training at the moment, would you say, a week? Oh, not – that many? I don't know. It's it's not a lot. It's mm. maybe fifteen something like that at the moment. Mm. Maybe fifteen. I, I'll try and get up a bit higher this week because mm. uh, I've just done a couple of halves, and this week should be about a bit pretty big week. So I don't know. We'll try and hit a we'll try and hit a high, a new high for the year this week. Mm. <laughs> oh, I, I look forward to meeting you in person when I'm when I'm at Noosa. 
How good was that episode? Seriously, but probably like me, it left you with so many questions about your own nutrition. I do think that it is very, very dependent on the individual. And if you're struggling with your weight or your performance or both, then finding an awesome nutritionist and working together over the long term is the best bet. Dietitian or a nutritionist, whoever you can afford, I guess. Right. Some of the podcasts that I've listened to this week include a really interesting podcast put together by the team at Inner Fight on the blurred lines of doping in sport. That's episode 571, well worth listening to. And my mate Ian Dunican, Sleep for Performance Radio, has done an amazing podcast on nutrition and shift work, episode 62. Right, that's about it for me. Remember, get your tickets for the live podcast, December 6th. And if you feel so inclined, go and um, give us a five-star review on iTunes. That would be fantastic. Till next time, live a life worth living.